0: Welcome to disciple dojo we have a fast turnaround what i mean by that is very recently we had dr jay sklar in to talk about his new commentary on the book of leviticus in the Zondervan exegetical commentary series if you missed that go check it out i'll put a link in the video description jay also has a commentary on the book of numbers that has just come out in the story of God, Bible commentary series. So our man, Jay Sklar has been very busy churning out biblical knowledge and I love it. I told Jay, he'd have to come on and talk about the numbers commentary. As soon as it was released, I ordered a copy. I read through the introduction numbers is probably my favorite book in the Pentateuch. I've said before, it's a toss up between Genesis and numbers. I've taught through numbers twice on two different occasions for a year each time. Numbers is a great book. It gets a bad rap. So I was excited to have Jay back on Disciple Dojo only after a few weeks since he was last here to talk all about the book of Numbers. We had a great discussion. He is a brilliant, gifted, and incredibly gracious scholar. He's a fellow Gordon Conwell alumni and just an all-around awesome guy. So I am so thankful that he agreed to come back to the dojo and to talk more Bible nerdiness. If you appreciate these type of interviews that we do, the best way you can help us to do more of them is by helping us grow this channel. And the best way you can do that is by subscribing. If you haven't done so already, click the little notifications icon that tells YouTube, hey, we like this channel. We want to see more of it. We think you should bump it up in the algorithm so more people can discover it. And those things don't cost anything, but they really do help us out. So if you haven't already done so, I would invite you to do that. And I also invite you to pray for this ministry. Pray that the Disciple Dojo as a channel reaches the people who need to see it. That people would get excited. That people would get fired up by going deeper into biblical nerdiness. That they would have transformational encounters with scripture. That they would start to see things in the text that they never noticed before. That they would be motivated to take seriously their calling to be disciples of Jesus and to study and learn and absorb God's word to, as our friend, Dr. Drew Johnson said, to move from Bible literacy to Bible fluency. All of that is what we want to encourage here at Disciple Dojo, bringing solid in-depth biblical scholarship of the highest level and presenting it to viewers in a way that anyone who's interested can appreciate, and can glean from. So that's what we do at this channel. If you're on board with that and you want to help us out, then like I said, subscribe, click the like button, share Disciple Dojo videos, poke around here on the channel, look at some of the other people that we've interviewed. Even just this week, we've had some phenomenal guests here on Disciple Dojo. So just take a look, see what we're about, do all those things after watching this awesome discussion that we had with Dr. Jay Sklar. So we are back here at Disciple Dojo with Dr. Jay Sklar. And Jay, this is you officially have the fastest turnaround time of any Disciple Dojo guest. One, because, you know, we like you. you. You did a good your first time and we were like, we should have him back. But two, because you just had another volume come out. And so two commentaries have been put out within like, I don't know, two months of each other or something. That's, that's, a, that's a record here in the dojo, at least. So yeah. welcome back. We are so glad to have you.
1: Thank you. It's a treat to be here, J.M.
0: Now, your commentary that just came out, the Story of God Bible Commentary Series, for folks who don't know, that's the one. We've mentioned it before in, in this last discussion, actually. You brought up uh, Chris Wright had done the Exodus volume in it. Yes. You yeah. have done Numbers. Is this the one that Carol Kaminsky has, second, First and Second Chronicles, coming out, or is that another yeah. series?
1: Yeah, Carol Kaminsky's doing chronicles in that. Um, Jerry Shepard did Leviticus. Tremper Longman did Genesis. So. Heavy hitters. And this uh, this series intentional.
0: Well, I'm not going to tell it. You tell us about it. What makes this commentary different than the uh, Zondervan, the exegetical commentary that you did on Leviticus?
1: So, three different things come to mind. Uh, one is. It's less technical than the Zondervan exegetical commentary series. So this one uh, doesn't assume any knowledge of Greek or Hebrew, that kind of thing. It's kind of at the Tyndale level from that perspective. Um, A second difference is that each chapter begins by explaining how this particular chapter relates to the ancient Near Eastern story. So, is there anything from the ancient near eastern context that helps us understand this so you get to the story of balaam and balak for example and that chapter will begin by saying actually we know the name balaam from other ancient near eastern sources outside the bible he was a known seer in the ancient near east da, da, da. but it also relates it to the ongoing biblical story that is to say numbers or leviticus whatever it is occurs in the midst of this grand narrative and so how does that grand narrative help us understand what's going on in the book of numbers? So that's the second difference, just that focus on the story. And then the third would be in the application section, just a very intentional um, focus on how does this chapter relate, especially to the story of redemption as it culminates in Jesus. Mm. And so, um, I mean, if you Depending who's written in the other series, they'll do those same things, but that's those are hallmarks for these series. This series in particular,
0: it's intentionally trying to be something that 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 gives people a bi- an exegetical basis for a biblical theology. That's and a great way. Then to yeah. a pastoral application. So it's kind of three things in one. Yeah, um, I I love the series so far. I've seen Chris's uh, Chris White's volume, and now I have yours. And I will continue to look at these as they come out because it's a great resource. And especially for, like you said, popular level readers and popular readers. And I know this because I've spent a year on two different occasions teaching through the book of numbers and popular level readers. They don't. by the time they usually get to numbers in their Bible reading plan, they're just in marathon mode, like just powering through the text. (laughs) They survived Leviticus and now they're in numbers and they open it up with a list of numbers and Mm -hmm. the longest, most repetitive chapter in scripture um, or at least most repetitive for sure. And so there's like this popular misunderstanding of the book of numbers that Mm -hmm. it's just like the forgotten book. You know, it's like, nahum or obadiah or it's like we know it's in there but uh, yeah so why is numbers so important that you would spend however many years of your life writing a commentary on it yeah
1: yeah i did i did get a chance to see uh some of your viewers might know you did a a a uh top six reasons for for looking at numbers mm-hmm. and um which was excellent. And part of your answer there, you know, that you focused on was just, there's so much interesting stuff that happens in the book. Yeah. Especially once you've come out of Leviticus, which is primarily law, all of a sudden you're back into the world of narrative. And so, um, Just from that perspective alone, Numbers is fascinating. It has a lot of important stories in it. One of the crucial stories that keeps getting returned to again and again in the scriptures is the faithlessness of the Israelites to march into the land. Mm -hmm. Numbers 13 and 14. So that's in there. Of course, you get to the Gospels and Jesus is looking back to the book of Numbers to explain his crucifixion. He mentions the bronze serpent. That happens there. And then... Many of the gospel writers and the writers of the epistles, and especially you get to a book like Hebrews, they're constantly looking back to numbers um, to draw lessons for a modern Christian audience. Um, And some of those lessons are lessons of real warning, um, looking at what happened to that first generation who died in the wilderness and. Just very strongly warning, make sure you don't follow their example. And others are looking back and just celebrating, delighting in the faithfulness of God that you see to such a faithless people. So numbers helps us in just all sorts of ways with a biblical theology or understanding who God is, what it means to live a life of faithfulness. All these things are wrapped up in numbers.
0: Amen. Amen. It's, it is it is to me the most you possibly with the exception of Genesis, the most interesting narrative in the Torah, particularly in the Torah, all the cool stuff. I tell people all the cool stuff happens the whole 40 year wandering. It's like a single between two verses in numbers. They don't even really spend time on it because it's just this gap. And then you're right into that next generation. And there's, you know, there's military incidences. There's this weird, which we'll talk about in a little bit incident with Balaam and who is this guy Mm-hmm. And the bronze serpent that you mentioned, that just gets, you know, lost a lot of New Testament readers when Jesus mentions it as if everybody knows it, which yeah, they yeah. would have in his day. But right. But for a lot right. of us, it's like, wait, what? There was a bronze serpent? Yeah. Yeah. So is part of the reason, my theory is part of the reason that Numbers has such a bad rap is because it has such a bad name that yeah. the Septuagint num- numeri or, or, yeah, you know, yeah. um, the Latin numeri, where we get numbers, is what we ended up with, right? And I just think that's super unfortunate. What, where, do, what's what's the name of the book, and why does it
1: matter? So there's a. I, I was just turning in my commentary here because there's a quote uh, from Ronald Allen. He said, "Who but a mathematician could rise with joy to a book called Numbers?" <laughs> and he, you know, he just kind of nails it there. So in the Hebrew, uh, it's called Bamidbar, which Mm -hmm. means in the wilderness, sometimes translated in the desert. Uh, But just a quick aside here. I think when most of us think of desert, we think of like the Arabian desert where all you see is sand. Mm -hmm. And really, the word refers to like a wilderness steep kind of area where there's, you know, cattle are able to feed on things and so, so anyway, it's called "In the Wilderness" in the Hebrew Bible. And um, if I could, uh, like, change change the name of this book, yeah, you had uh, a good title for it. What was your? It was a slightly longer than. Numbers. Yeah, I, yeah. If if words, if length weren't an an issue, <laughs> mine would be a tale of the Lord's ongoing faithfulness and mercy to two generations of Israelites: one faithless and one faithful. Because as you go through numbers, um, so here's another way to think of it. You can think of it as uh, a story of two mountain peaks of glory with this valley of despair in the middle. Mm -hmm. So chapters 1 through 10, first mountain peak of glory, the Israelites are getting ready to march to the promised lands. They're so excited. Um, Everything's positive, what the Lord says they do. Then you get from like 11 to 25, and you're in this valley of despair, And the Israelites are just constantly faithless. Um, They experience judgment and discipline. Uh, There is a a stream in the valley of the Lord's grace and faithfulness. Mm -hmm. But everything else is just despair. And then you get to the second generation, 26 through 36, and it's this peak again of glory with obedience. They're getting ready to march in the promised land. In fact, by the end of the book, they're right on the cusp of the promised land, ready to go in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we we see numbers and we think, oh, what a boring book. Right. But really, it's the story of all of this taking place in the wilderness with its glorious heights as well as its um, depths of despair.
0: It's, it is an unfortunate title, and I never really— thought much of it until I think it was, it was either um, Olson or Ashley in their commentary uh, that said they structured the book. Their theory was the book should be structured around the two census lists. Do you remember Uh which commentator that was? Um, Alan, I think was one of the, or Olson was one of the first to do that. I think it was Olson in interpretation is where I first read it at least. And it, to me that, I don't know if that's the key to, you know, the structure of the book, but it was a way for me to wrap my mind around, how the the even the title of numbers can actually start to make sense if it's like the numbers are those two census lists military census lists of the tribal forces and you know contrasting them the first generation that came out of egypt that saw all the miracles firsthand that heard the voice of god at sinai they died in the desert and the next generation would yeah. inhabit or if, inherit the promises to them. And that, to me, that was a good anchor that yeah. let me see exactly what you're talking about in those two mountaintops, as you put it.
1: Yeah, because both of those, 1 through 10 and 26 through 36, they both begin with the census mm-hmm. uh, of the numbers. And the other thing to throw in here, JM, is that, you know, we look at numbers and we think, oh, what a boring list. But for the Israelites, these lists shouted, the Lord's faithfulness to his patriarchal promises. Mm-hmm. Because one of the key promises is I'm going to make you a nation. And yes. so you read through both the lists and it becomes clear, oh, the Lord has abundantly fulfilled his promise, right? Mm-hmm. To Abraham, like the stars of the the heavens, the sand of the seashore. And so, again, we might look at it and think, oh, that's boring. Mm-hmm. But Israelites, they're, they're hearing echoes of the Lord's faithfulness with every name that's read. Mm -hmm. And that touches on the
0: the point that I wanted to ask about, about the notorious, tedious chapter, where it is easily the most repetitive chapter in the Bible, every single tribe, and they present their gifts and the exact amount of their gifts, and there's no variation, or at least I can't remember there being any variation. And it's Mm -hmm. one of the longest chapters in the Bible, maybe besides Psalm 119. But that is... I don't, I can't remember if you likened it in your introduction or if somebody else I was reading, but they talked about, think of, think of what any graduation ceremony you've been to. It's super tedious because you're just literally reading the name. They walk across, they grab a diploma, but there's the, that's the whole point of the thing is that repetition and that
1: belonging. Uh, Was that in your commentary or or do you see it in a different way? No, no. Yeah, that's, that's one of the illustrations I use because- Often at my seminary, I've been the one reading out the names and it takes over an hour, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, you just like, why not just say, hey, MDiv class, stand up. OK, right. y'all are good to go. Right. And let's go on. Hey, done and dusted in five minutes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is in a graduation ceremony, if you're not named, you're not part of the class. Mm-hmm. Being named really matters. Mm-hmm. So when you come into um, at the the opening of the Olympic ceremonies is is another example. I yes, time. that was I remember you using that example, you know, because you're watching all these, you know, then they come out. one Australia and then all, you know, and and all of a sudden you get really excited because you got to the seas and here comes Canada mm-hmm. and then your interest wanes again. And um, but anyway, all that to say. No, you, if your country's not named, you're not part of those games. Mm -hmm. So, so one being named matters. Um, The other two things about that chapter that are really important to maybe help us understand why, why do this? Why go through all this detail again and again and again? um, These are gifts for the dedication of the altar. Mm -hmm. And that is Israel's lifeline to the Lord. And so when you've got something that important, you bet every single tribe wants to be named as taking part yes. in contributing to the Lord's worship, mm-hmm. right? That, that matters. And, and the other thing that's so important to notice here is that um, like when you read the census lists, you can see not all tribes are the same size. Mm-hmm. And so it could be easy to begin to think, oh, which tribe matters more, which, which one? But in this list, Every tribe gives exactly the same, mm-hmm. and it's actually one of the themes of Numbers, um, the unity and the parity of God's people. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a tribal society, that was so important. I, I think of like in the in the New Testament church, you know, what does Paul have to come come back to in First Corinthians twelve and thirteen? Right, there's all this rivalry. Which one of us is more important? Who has all the gifts? Right. And the fact of the matter is, no, you're all in the same body. You're all working. Don't think in terms of who's more important. That's not the point, mm-hmm. right? Or even today, sometimes, I don't know how you think about it, JM, but it strikes me that just as the Israelites um, had tribalism in a negative way, tribalism doesn't have to be negative, but once you begin to compare and compete, you know, mm-hmm. that that happens with denominations. You know, we meet yes. someone and we're like, oh, you're, you're that denomination, mm-hmm. you know, and the person might agree with you on every single thing except are they pre-mill or post-mill, and you can begin to look at, you know, do you know how much that person has in common with you as a blood-bought lamb of Jesus? I mean, oh, so anyway, all that to say, I think we should come out of number seven thinking, oh, yeah, Lord, it's about you, your way of salvation, and... You've made us to be one body. Help us to work together as such.
0: Yeah, it's a really cool concept that every tribe, because some of them were vastly outnumbering the others. And you might think, well, they should give more because they can't afford. But it wasn't about like a tax or it wasn't about sustaining the poor or whatever that the the, right. the um, giving would later contribute to. This was dedication of the tabernacle. And and you didn't you, you needed the same thing from everyone. Yep. and every tribe could afford it and they <laughs> could bring it forward and it is that the opening ceremony you know or the graduation image you 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 perk up when your tribe gets called i think the, the difficulty with modern readers is we have trouble putting ourselves in the place of ancient israel because it's just so foreign it's just a foreign culture language uh yeah. geography all of it yeah and so we It's just hard. It's a hard interpretive bridge to cross for a lot of people, which is why I'm glad your commentary and others like it are out there so that people can go across because there's some cool stuff over there once you cross the bridge and kind of look around and see it. Yeah. Well, speaking of numbers, one of the issues, and this is one where scholars disagree, um, is how to handle the numbers in the book of numbers and not just numbers, but also Exodus and elsewhere where these census lists and these thousands of members of armies or whatever, the problem for those who are brand new, the problem is that the numbers seem vastly out of proportion to what we, to our best guess of what the actual demographics in the ancient world were. Yeah. And so if we take them straight, literally, which many godly interpreters do, and they've tried to make arguments for why they should, right. they, it raises a lot of problems, not in just the sense of could this happen physically, but just in what we read in other texts. So can you give us a, an overview of, you know, the, the, the options and then kind of why you land where you land?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And again, I thought you did a great job of this in the clip you did on the six uh, six things to remember for numbers, thank um, you, thank even you. though we might end up in a bit of a different place at the end. But, um, yeah, so four, four main approaches. The first you mentioned, which is probably the most traditional, is to read these just um, as we treat numbers today in 2023. That is right. take them very literally. And uh, the issues there are... Um, well, I'll start with the most important for just from a biblical perspective, passages in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 7 talk about Israel being the fewest of all the peoples mm-hmm. um, or the Lord needing to um, uh, give them special protection from animals because they were so few. And if you have close to um, three or four million people, that's that's no longer an issue. So the right. Bible itself begins to st- to to point us away from taking these at at just at face value, mm-hmm. um, uh, of course, other uh, issues archaeologically, you know, our best guess is that there were a hundred to two hundred thousand people in that area at that point in history, mm-hmm. and so again, even if you would multiply that by ten to a million, you're still out vastly numbering. So anyway, problems with with that view. A uh, second approach has been more symbolic, and this kind of divides in two. Some people will uh, go with what's known as gematria, where they will assign uh, various um, values to the letters and try and figure out something that way. Mm-hmm. And another approach is to to try and link this somehow to astronomical phenomena. And um, But there are very most have abandoned any of those approaches because it's hard to be consistent with them and they seem very subjective at the end of the day Mm -hmm. so then the third and fourth approaches the third is the the number for 1000 lf can also refer to a troop or sometimes a clan and so the suggestion there is oh if you have um it's really a reference to 23 clans or regiments or groups or something like that and so that then takes your numbers down by a factor of probably at least 10 or so Mm -hmm. um, if not more and and all of a sudden those begin to look more realistic for what we know from biblical verses fewest of people and what we know archaeologically and the fourth approach is to say oh uh, in the ancient near east especially in a military context it was common to inflate numbers. And so we have examples of this from other ancient Near Eastern texts. Everyone knew it was done. Mm-hmm. So doing it wasn't deceptive, it was just common practice. And so from that perspective, it would say um, they're reporting 603,000, but everyone knew you you had to reduce that maybe by a factor of 10 or something like that. So those are the, the main approaches. Um, uh, the first two probably seem least possible to me. Um, I lean towards the latter, but uh, uh, yeah, as you're reading the numbers, I think we just need to be aware. Um, ancients didn't always use them the way that we do today in two thousand and twenty three that that's to me the
0: most important point. and and you do you do a really good job in your introduction introducing that issue. And then you do, you do what I, in my study Bible reviews here on the channel, what I, um, encourage people to look for resources that do you lay out different arguments as fairly as possible. And you didn't, you weren't writing a whole essay on that. You just had a couple of paragraphs that deal with it, but you did all the things I think a good study Bible would do is hold on. My phone's going off. There we go. Is you laid out the options You gave the rationale behind each one, and then you weren't afraid to say, This is kind of where I land. This is what, but you did so in a way that wasn't dogmatic and it wasn't dismissive of the others. It was just on the balance, I think this one has the fewest amount of problems, which is to me the way to take a position on pretty much any secondary issue in scripture. Mm -hmm. because the most important thing and the thing that I, like I do, I, I came up under Doug Stewart and uh, he, you know, in his Hebrew classes would talk about Aleph and how it probably comes from Aluf, And it was originally a title for like head of cattle and that morphed into this and that. So that's kind of been my leaning, but I've also read good uh, scholars like yourself and others who have said possible, but maybe this is a little more likely And so at the end of the day, you can't take a dogmatic approach, but you can highlight exactly what you highlight, which is the ancients didn't use numbers for mathematical demographic precision the way we do. And that's the big, I think that's the big takeaway, no matter which
1: solution you end up adopting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of times, one thing I've learned over the years, JM, is that, um, you know, you might have two differing opinions um, it's super helpful to ask, but where do they overlap? Like especially yes. if it, especially if you're like, ah, I'm sixty forty or I'm seventy. Is just to ask. Well, regardless of which it is, what what would they both agree on? Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's such a large center of overlap mm-hmm. that practically the difference begins to to fade away. Not always. Um, uh, but sometimes that happens and that's just, that can be super helpful.
0: Yeah. I, Carmen Iams and I were literally just talking about this yesterday at almost this exact time of day <laughs> when, when talking about when scholars disagree and we're talking about when you just, when you have to disagree with somebody who you actually really like and are friends with, but you yeah. take a different position than them. And we, you know, I, how you navigate that, but that is looking for the similarities, looking for the common ground and yeah. then letting your differences rest on that yeah. foundation, I think, is it just—it's fun, it's yeah. edifying, it sharpens us. It's—it's yeah. it's like that's what good sparring should be in a martial arts context. Is you know, yeah. we're on the same team. We're trying to make each other better. Now let's Absolutely. go at it for a minute, and then Absolutely. when you're done, you hug and thank your partner.
1: <laughs> yeah. you know, well, on, on go ahead. Yeah, on the other side of that coin, the other thing that's been super helpful for me over the years to, it, to realize is simply this, that a lot of times I used to ap- approach things as um, it's black or it's white. You know, it's one or the other. And just realizing over the years, no, for a lot of um, biblical or theological arguments, you're actually weighing evidence. And as you weigh evidence, um, so in my mind, I have this scale. At one end is you say, nope, impossible. At the other end, you say, absolutely. Right in the middle is possible. And, and so as you're going from like possible this way, you go possible, uh, plausible, likely, very likely certain. Mm-hmm. Or uh, implausible, unlikely, very unlikely, impossible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And having that range is so helpful for me to know like resurrection, absolutely yeah, exactly. right. Mm-hmm. Um, God being unfaithful, impossible, right? But then there are things where it's like maybe your position on eschatology, mm-hmm. um, or a certain aspect of eschatology, or on baptism, and you know there are different things where you're like, well, I'm post mill or pre mill or, but. I, for me, it's kind of into the, and you might choose category likely or probable. Uh, you might choose very likely. Mm-hmm. Some do choose absolutely this. Um, but once you have that scale, it also helps as you're enacting with other people because it can take the temperature down in the room. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You don't see them as an enemy. You don't see them as, th-
0: this is the thing that drives me crazy about YouTube Ministry social media ministry in general general, but particularly YouTube, all not all, but many of the YouTube content creators in biblical theological stuff take that antagonistic approach, it's polemics. They're yeah, yeah. always mad about something or they're always warning the flock. About something. And there are things to absolutely warn the flock about. And there are things that are absolute godless heresy that I would proudly stand up and say that is nonsense. But there are not as many of them as some people out there would lead us to believe. And there are some, even in scholarly circles, that draw tighter circles around their camp. And see those outside of those circles as suspect at best and, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing at worst. So, so thank you for not being that.
1: (laughs) I think honestly, you you said it right. Like, no, there are, there are things you disfellowship over, Mm -hmm. you know, and those are super important to keep in mind. And, and sometimes like we've lost that aspect of things. Right. So we can't forget those. But the list of that list of things, you know, you just as much as possible, you want to make sure it's a biblical list. Right. And you're 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 understanding what is primary, what is secondary, what's yes. tertiary yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a smaller list than the other list of things that we're allowed to disagree over. It's 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 yeah. typically that um, they Oh, you brought up something I want to see. I want to make sure because we're, we're about halfway through. So I'm going to keep us moving along. That, that could be a whole episode in and of itself. Yeah. It's talking about that. Oh, this is what I was going to ask. Do you think that I've said this before? You and I both went to Gordon Conwell. We have many of the same professors. We weren't there at the same time, but we weren't far apart. I've told people that I am so grateful that I went to Gordon-Conwell, not necessarily because of like reputation or, I mean, the professors were great, but there are great professors at many other academies and uh, yeah. seminaries. But what I was grateful for was because I had to, in the same day, go sit under an Armenian professor and then a Calvinist professor. I had to sit under a professor who was a secessionist and one who believed that the gifts continued. I had you, and because they were on staff with each other, they could not straw man the other position as right. easily as if you went to a seminary with one tradition, whichever tradition it was, much easier to straw man those on the outside. And I really appreciate. It. Did you find was that similar to your
1: experience at Gordon yeah. Conwell or was yours different? No, it it's similar and Um, So I'll do a strength, weakness, strength, weakness on on each aspect of things. So the strength of going to a school that's interdenominational is that you do have that kind of exposure um, in the classroom and often among the students as well, you know, that you're eating with. And sometimes it can help um, break down the tribalism, because even when you end up in position X, you have very godly friends who hold to position Y. And so it gives you that you've got a context for thinking, oh, yeah, somebody can disagree with me on this, but still be faithful to biblical teaching and love Jesus. And blah. so that's the strength of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, for me, the challenge was that it was more difficult for me to come out with a, a cohesive um, mm-hmm. theology at the end. Um, I I still felt like there was lots of work I was having to do on the other side Mm -hmm. to try and work out, you know, how how does everything hang together? So that was the challenge of it. Mm -hmm. If you go to, so full disclosure, I teach at a denominational seminary now, Mm -hmm. Covenant Seminary. And um, there, the the possible disadvantage, as you said, is that you can straw man people. And that's where I'm thankful, like at our school, I think, um, though it's denominational, um, 40% of our students aren't from the denomination, Mm. you know, and, and the professors you hire are key. If you hire polemical people, you might get that happening, you know, we focus on, yeah, let's find people who are, who are godly, who, you know, are going to present things fairly Mm. and, you know, and, and have students read outside of our tradition. Mm-hmm. Right. So they can see, okay, there are other, um, so that you've got a, there's a possible disadvantage. You've got to try and, and manage the, the advantage is that it's easier for a student to come out with a more cohesive theology, right? Because they've been able they, they've got, gotten much more into, um, uh, one system, if you will, mm-hmm. um, learning from the others, but they're able to go deep in one in one. So, so there are pluses and minuses both ways. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And I I think it does – I think it what which environment one would be more comfortable in will depend on, like, what their long-term ministry goals are, what their own innate ability to interact with people outside of that circle is. Because I'm saying this, and I have great friends and, and ministry colleagues that went to Asbury, you know, Wesleyan, and and, you know, wow. kind of Methodist Wesleyan bubble. And they know more about that tradition than I do, even though I was born and raised in it. Right, right, and yeah. so what? But what I'm thankful for is at least at the beginning, foundational level, is it's like I can't. I will push back when people caricature non Lesliean positions because yes. I learned from people under those. So as long as there's, I like how you say that. Is the ch- there's strengths and there's weaknesses, there's challenges, and mm-hmm. however we're able to navigate those, just keeping in mind the big picture of. We don't always have to agree, but we yeah. are still unified to the, as much as we're able to be unified. Yes. Um, yeah. That's, like I said, whole other topic. It was sort of an aside. Let's get back to numbers. numbers. And, oh yeah. Right. Numbers. Yeah. You wrote a book about that. So we want to talk oh, about yeah. it. Yeah. This is what happens when Bible nerdy this people awesome. start this chatting. Awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> So you brought up something when you wrote me back and, and I, we had chatted about some things that I wanted to mention. And you reminded me of a yeah. passage that I had like, oh, yeah, I forgot that was in Numbers. And that's yeah. the Numbers chapter five and the yeah. ritual, because this gets lampooned all the time on like atheist or skeptic memes. Um, yeah. This is pointed to regularly as an example of how the Bible had these trial by ordeals and the women were – you know, guilty until proven innocent and all of this stuff, which is just the opposite of what the passage is about. But what I'm going to do is pull up. So now viewers can see both of our lovely faces, but they can also see the text of numbers five. Uh, I've got the Hebrew on the left. And then I'm just, since you're a a good uh, uh, gospel coalition guy, I've got the ESV pulled up uh, like to accommodate my guests. So I love NIV too. So, Oh, okay. Well, I I wasn't going to presume, but, um, but, but it also, you know, the, the kind of more literal in this, at least in some of the things might be a little easier to track, but numbers five, what is going on with this? As you can see on the viewers can see on my screen, a test for adultery, right? So can you explain this ritual? Yes. And then, why this is not just a barbaric, woman hating, awful thing that we should tear out of our Bibles.
1: Yeah. So, when you read through the text, the, the basic ritual goes like this A husband has suspected his wife of adultery. So, they go to the tabernacle together, they come before the priest, um, and a ritual ensues. And in the ritual, the woman looses her hair, um, the priest um, writes a curse. Uh, on uh, on parchment, and um, the curse is that if she's been faithless, if she has committed adultery, um, she hasn't been caught in the act. Her husband's just suspicious. So um, the priest writes a curse that her – and there's debate on how do you translate the terms, but um, her belly will swell, her womb will fall. There are different ways it's translated, but something happens physically. It seems she's not going to be able to have kids and, um, then the priest rinses it, the, the curse off into water, um, adds some, um, dust from the tabernacle floor and the woman drinks it. Um, and basically says, if I'm guilty, may this, may these be bitter waters that cause the curse to happen. Um, and, and that's it. That's, that's the ritual. And, uh, we read through this. In fact, I've, I taught. I'm teaching Pentateuch this semester, and we got to this ritual, and and I asked the class, what, why, what are some of the challenges with this? And men and women in the class, and they began to name all sorts of different things. Like this seems like magic. Um, it seems like uh, it's un it's unfair because there's not a similar trial for the man. Um, this, this is shame inducing. So we listed all these things and I said, yep, this is a tough passage. Just wanted to note that let's go on to to number six. And they looked at me. I said, just kidding. So anyway, (laughs) we we dove back in, to look at, um, what's going on. And so there are a few things to say here. The first is, and so I've got some show and tell here. This is often called a trial by ordeal, Mm-hmm. And uh, a trial by ordeal is when guilt or innocence is not clear, but somebody's suspected of being guilty, they go through some uh, ceremony or ritual that often how it's been practiced in the history of the world uh, ends up being harmful to them, whether they're innocent or not. So you right, think like of this. throw them in a river and if they don't drown, yeah. then they're innocent. Well, in fact, I'm glad you mentioned that one. So, um, you might have talked with your viewers before about these books, ancient Near Eastern texts. Have you guys talked about these
0: before? I have read from it uh, a couple of times, and from context of scripture.
1: But yes, okay, great. So I thought your yours would be interested. Mm-hmm. So the traditional or, or classic for You're going up just a little bit higher. Yeah, there we go. So they can see the the classic for um, resource for looking at texts from the ancient Near East is this volume by Pritchard. Mm -hmm. You might see it referred to sometimes just as A.N.E.T. ancient Near Eastern texts. Mm -hmm. He did a companion volume, A.N.E.P., that has pictures. Mm -hmm. And these are super interesting because uh, they go through like, for example, I'm not sure how clearly it will come through, but. Here here is a relief, ancient Near Eastern relief, and it's actually of Jehu bowing before Shalmaneser. Uh So a story right out of Kings that we actually have a picture of it happening, which is fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. Or um, another. uh, So here what you see, these are some people who are greeting a king Mm -hmm. and you can see that their hands are raised. Which helps you to know, like I grew up in a context, we didn't raise our hands in church. You know, what that, what's that about? Why does the Bible talk about that? Well, these pictures show that's what you did before a king. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden that helped me to, in worship, realize, okay, this is a way of saying, Lord, you're the king and I'm giving you glory. For the-. So anyway, those two, that's the classic source. The more recent source, which you just mentioned, is the context of scripture. Mm-hmm. It comes in four volumes. And they don't have pictures, these guys, but they've got a lot more texts and they have more modern translations. Right. A little easier to read their English in the context of scripture. Absolutely. So um, that's all lead up to, say, uh, trial by ordeal. Hammurabi's laws list a trial by ordeal. Um, So here's law number two from Hammurabi. If a man charges another man with practicing witchcraft, but cannot prove it, then he who is charged with witchcraft shall go to the divine river ordeal. He shall indeed submit to the divine river ordeal. If the divine river ordeal should overwhelm him, so in other words, he's got to go down to the river and jump in. Mm-hmm. And if he dies, then what happens? So if if, uh, if I've accused you of this, then you're going to the river. If you don't make it out, it says that I get your estate. Mm-hmm. But if the divine river ordeal should clear that man and he survives, so you survive, um, then he who made the charge shall be killed. And so <laughs> that's the divine river ordeal. Mm-hmm. That matters because when you get come over to law 132, you read if a man's wife should have a finger pointed against her in accusation involving another male. So in other words, you have said to me, your wife had committed adultery with somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, Although she's not been seized lying with another male, she shall submit to the divine river ordeal for her husband. In other words, my wife would have to go jump in the river to try and prove that she was innocent. Mm -hmm. Now, That kind of trial or by ordeal, you know what happened? A lot of innocent people died. Mm -hmm. Some commentators, therefore, don't even want to call this a trial by ordeal Mm -hmm. because drinking these waters, you know, it's got a bit of dust in them. The priest doesn't make this like a Slurpee. Right. (laughs) Right. And so this is like swimmers at the beach. You know, you you ingest water with sand in it all the time. It's not harmful. Um, there's no harm here unless the Lord himself brings judgment to pass. And that's where when I turn the question back to my class and say, OK, put yourself back in this context. How could this be helpful? They begin to name things like this. Well, um, actually, this takes justice out of the hands of an angry husband mm-hmm. or an angry mob and puts it into the hands of the Lord oh, this um, this trial actually becomes public justification. There can't be murmur campaigns, whispering campaigns, because the Lord, if the woman's innocent, the Lord himself has declared her to be innocent. And that's where I'll pause. I'll, I'll ask my students, how many of you have been publicly slandered and uh, you couldn't prove your innocence, but if this were an option... You would go through it to, to uh, restore your name. And this year, almost half the class put up their hand. You know, So, so that's another advantage. Um, the question still comes, yeah, but there's nothing for the man. Like it's just the woman who has to do this. And that's where we begin to think about the fact, you know, first of all, the man shouldn't think he's going to um, get away. Be sure your sin will find you out. You know, the Lord's punishment always comes. Um, if the couple is caught in the act, the man faces the same penalty. They're both put to death. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that we remember is many of a, a society's laws are there to protect people from unjust suffering. So in an ancient Near Eastern setting, you had laws. Israel had laws saying you have to treat the sojourner fairly. Why did they have those laws? Well, because in an ancient Near Eastern setting, you could take advantage of a sojourner or because of greed or maybe just from um, xenophobia or whatever it is. That's not right. That reality is not right, but it's a reality. And so you have laws to protect. In the same way, in an ancient Near Eastern setting, a husband that was uh, suspected of adultery by his wife, he wasn't in danger. Right. The The wife was in danger. That's not right, but it was a reality. Mm-hmm. And so that's another reason for a law like this. It's actually incredibly protective. So what the, the long and the short of it is what we, from a modern perspective, often look at with high suspicion, you know, an ancient Israelite woman is able to look at as protective care right? and entirely different from having to throw herself into a river.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a point. And I want to make sure viewers don't gloss over this, this ritual, go back and read the text. Like Jay said, there's debate about what it means that like her thigh will fall. Um, does that infertility or is some kind of disfigurement or something? But the key point is that the thing she drinks is just water with a little bit of dust and like, you know, a paper possibly flecks of ink in it right. uh, at most, but yeah. probably on par with the normal water. Most people in the ancient world would drink anyway, in terms of hygiene, yeah. it was, there was nothing dangerous about it. Right. If only God had, would have to supernaturally intervene in order for the curse to take effect. That's the point that's missed by all of the people that just, Throw this verse out as, yeah. you know, whatever magic or, you know, misogyny or this and that. Do you find any value in uh, the, because the, I, I know some of my Old Testament friends do and some don't in uh, like William Webb's redemptive hermeneutic movement. And would you see that as an example of this where looking from our perspective, yes, we would want laws to involve the man and the woman, because our perspective is one on this side of, you know, Jesus's treatment of women and and sort of cultural movement. But in an ancient Near East patriarchal society where slavery was a real thing, where wars and captives were a real thing, that was moving them in a redemptive direction. Do you find validity in that? Or do you think that is there a better way to explain how an Old Testament ethic excuse me, an Old Testament law can oh, right. fall short of what ultimately we would see as a kingdom ethic
1: in, yeah. in that particular setting. I wouldn't in this, I'd be slower to apply it in this context. Mm-hmm. As I, th- I think this is a law that's trying to deal with um, uh, addressing. Yeah. Addressing the, um, the reality of what society was like at that time. The power of course the Bible. Yeah. Of course, mm-hmm. the Bible doesn't want society to be one in which women face that danger. Right. Right. But um, for me, this wouldn't be as much a, a place where, I, where I'd take Webb's approach um, with this. Um, I, I would throw in, um, back to the magic thing, mm-hmm. Wenna makes the point that uh, while we tend to look at this as magic, um, what 's actually taking place here is we are seeing a um a visual prayer mm. or an enacted prayer mm-hmm. because when you do this ritual at the tabernacle um before the presence of the lord it 's very clear you 're praying for him to be the one who um, carries out justice, mm. and so from that perspective it 's no more it 's its effect is no more magical than God answering prayer. Um, that's what's taking place. And I think whenever there's a mechanism,
0: people start to get a little antsy, you know, like when, like when Jesus rubbing mud on somebody's eyes. They start to focus on the mud. And right. and then it, that's when I think people, because that's what magic is, you know, manipulating yeah. physical elements. Right. But, but that's, yeah, that's absolutely not what's going on. I love that. This is a visual prayer. That's a great way to put it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, let me keep us moving then, because there's a couple more points that uh, you had mentioned, and I want you to touch on them. One was um, you talked about there's some concepts and numbers that are not always appreciated, but that are important. Um, You gave the example of the Lord as king in palace tent in Israel's midst. Yeah. What is I saw that you have a visual of that in the commentary, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I was making that up. No, here it is. So yes.
1: um, again, I'm not sure how clear this is going to be. I can be see it. You. That's Yep, can see, see exactly it? what you're right. Yep. So what we're looking at here is a picture of the camp of Ramses II. So we're 13th century. Mm-hmm. And depending where you put the Exodus, you're going to think of the Israelites as coming out around either 1440 or 1300. So mm-hmm. um, uh, we're right in that same same time frame here. And what this shows is that it's his military camp and his tent is in the center. Mm-hmm. So a, a camp in the, in the middle of the tent uh, or in the, uh, a, a tent in the middle of the camp mm-hmm. and the, the tent itself, it has a forecourt that's twice as long as an interior court. Mm. Uh, and of course, the holy place is twice as long as the most holy place in Israel. Mm-hmm. And in the interior court or interior room, antechamber, it has a picture of the Pharaoh's cartouche. So the symbol of the Pharaoh. And it is surrounded on either side by winged heavenly beings that are, uh, you know, holding their wings up mm-hmm. um, Uh, around the cartridge almost like in a protective way which of course so it's fascinating when you see that you realize oh uh, now this actually jam it makes some people nervous Mm -hmm. because what i'm saying here is there are all sorts of parallels and i'm not just the one saying lots of people are pointing out the parallels between Pharaoh is king in his tent with this kind of structure in the middle of the camp and Yahweh is king in his tent in the middle of the camp And sometimes the, the parallels make people nervous because it's like oh this feels like it's somehow derivative. if this is yeah if this yeah. is copying it's somehow less but I think the the proper way to think about it is um, that the Lord is a master communicator. Mm -hmm. And so if he's going to let Israel know, I'm the divine king in your midst, what communicates that most clearly? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to put myself in a tent that you'll recognize as a king's tent. You know, and so, um, yeah, the Lord is divine warrior king in the midst of his people. Um, Just looking at the structure of the camp, once you put it in its ancient Near Eastern setting, that becomes really clear. It is. Yes, it is crystal clear. Two two summers ago, we did a video
0: series here at the dojo on, on the backgrounds of Sinai. And that was one of the, the exactly what you're saying. I'll put that up for viewers that want to go check it out. Um, John Courid has done a lot of work on that and the Egyptian parallels and, and the yep. structural parallels. And we looked at other stuff by Morales and Kathy McDowell and everything. But it was it was God doing exactly what you're talking about. Like you're going to speak to a people. Well, you're not going to speak an alien language using alien symbols. You're going to use something that they already grasp, but take it to the nth degree. Right. And that's a great example. I love that. That's yeah. Well, let's tell me about how numbers 1433 and I'll put these up on the screen helps us understand Exodus 34 seven. In Numbers 1433, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And it says... This is God uh, punishing those, uh, the unfaithful generation. It says, but as for you, this is verse 32, but as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithfulness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. Now in Exodus 34, this is when God passes before Moses. This is before this, obviously. God passed before Moses on Sinai. Moses is in the cleft. And verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and this is his divine name, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping chesed for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So you got these two verses. How do they inform one another at all? So we
1: love Exodus 34, 6 to 7a, (laughs) where. (laughs) The Lord being gracious and forgiving. And then we get to seven B who visits the iniquity of the the fathers on the children of third and fourth generation. Mm -hmm. And we stop and we're like, wait a second at that. That sounds at first glance, like, um, I guess you don't sound at first glance, but (laughs) first glance, it looks like the Lord is saying, um, you know, um, I'm going to be angry with the kids because of you. Right which of course goes against what he says in Deuteronomy, that children won't be put to death for the sin of the fathers, right? So we know it can't mean that, what in the world does it mean? And there are different explanations, but the two that seem most likely to me is that when the Lord is saying, um, you know, to the third and fourth generation, what he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He's saying either that, um, even if I'm patient and don't punish in the first generation, or the second generation who's doing the same thing. Once it gets to third and fourth generation, don't think I'll forgotten, I'll eventually bring punishment to bear. And so in favor of that approach, you see that take place in the book of Kings, right? With Manasseh and those who repeat the same sins, mm-hmm. when the punishment comes, is included in it. Why? Well, the Lord was patient, skipped over, but he finally brought it to bear. But the other understanding is When the Lord talks about three to four generations, it's because in ancient Israel, you had three to four generations living together. Yes. I was going to ask you that. I love hearing you say that. (laughs) And and what he's saying is, um, and this becomes a really stark warning, jam, Jam, because he's saying to the Israelites, your sin doesn't end at the foot of your bed. It impacts those who are most closely connected to you. Uh, that when I bring discipline for sin on the fathers, guess what? Their whole family is going to be impacted by that. And that's what numbers 1334 says, you know, your children will suffer as shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because the Lord was angry with the second generation. No, it's because that's how families work. Right? You're so connected as a family or as a nation. It's like one of those uh, mobiles over a a child's crib. You hit one thing and it it affects everything else. Mm-hmm. And so is it fair? No, it's not fair, but is it the lord's fault? no, it's it's the sinner's fault who's bringing this to bear now on his family.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so this the 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 uh the warning about the third and fourth generation is really a warning. Um, To you and to me, your sin doesn't end at the foot of your bed. And you have to recognize that um, when discipline for it comes, that's likely going to impact more than just you.
0: You see this. uh, Well, a prime example would be in uh, Achan. you know, when his household and the judgment that they experience and 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 what's worth not missing for viewers is the contrast third and fourth generation. I think at least you can tell me if you agree but third and fourth generation is contrasted with thousands. Yes. In other words, God's overriding desire is to show mercy to thousands. And, yes. and you might think of generations yeah. where, but his judgment is real and it yeah. does visit and it does affect household. I'm glad I, I had always Assumed and taught that that was the third and fourth generation was specific. I think specifically a household reference yeah, because yeah. of the 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 what is it called the head of the household the beit of Be- the house of the father house of the father yeah yeah uh, well I'm glad to hear an actual scholar say that that makes me feel better.
1: Well, <laughs> and Mark Mark Boda has done really good work on this in his mm-hmm. book. I think he called it a severe mercy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um but what you picked up on the, the language of a thousand, that's something a point Doug Stewart makes in his Exodus commentary that yeah, it's the greatest numerical contrast in the Bible, you know, three or four to thousands. Mm-hmm. And it just shows sometimes we read the Old Testament and think, oh, the Lord is spring loaded to judge. Mm-hmm. But no, actually, he is spring loaded to forgive. Right. That's his heart's desire. What's what and, made Jonah so mad? You know, it, Jonah
0: was like, "I know he's just going to forgive him. I want him to burn." And yeah, Jonah would be not to buy into the fact that the Old Testament God is a God of anger and hatred. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, "No, he's too loving. He's too nice. He's too That's forgiving." Exact.
1: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> well, let's let's do let's look at one more because I do want to honor our time and we're coming up on with, right at an hour. Um, you mentioned the daughters of Zelophehad. Oh, yeah, And what, because that seems like at the end of the book yeah, uh, or later in the book, there's just yeah. this, almost like an appendices or just sort of a, oh yeah, these daughters and they get some land. Yeah. yeah. What, what is going on there? And why is it important?
1: I love this story because mm-hmm. actually, so they occur in chapters, um, they show up in chapters 27 and 36. Mm-hmm. And so remember the the two peaks. So. We've just gotten to the second peak, starts in chapter 26 with this um, census of the people. And then in 27, the daughters of Zelophehad, they come and they say, look, um, our dad's dead. He had no sons. But um, and that means when we get to the promised land, we're not going to get any inheritance. And and our father's name is going to disappear. And he wasn't part of the rebels with Korah and that kind of thing. He was like a sinful Israelite with everyone else, but we don't want his name wiped out. And the assumption is that if they could inherit the land and then somebody married into that estate, it would carry on his name through the estate. Right. Right. Um, So they come to Moses. And what's beautiful about this is, one, they're believing God's promises are going to come true. So they, they're the first examples of real faith here in this second generation, right? Women are featured as Mm -hmm. the first examples of just deep faith in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they're saying there's a cultural problem here and we're asking the Lord to address it. Mm -hmm. And often we do just the opposite. We say, oh, um, the Bible's got a problem. It's got to bend to culture, right? But they're, so, so anyway, so. They make this request, the Lord says they're right. If a man dies without sons, the daughters can inherit. Great, so we go on through the rest of Numbers. We get to the last chapter of the book, 36, and some of the Israelites come and they say, look, that thing that happened in 27, um, there is a loophole because if they marry these daughters outside their tribe, now the land is gonna pass into other tribes and our tribes inheritance will get smaller. And so Moses goes to the Lord and the Lord says, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, we'll close the loophole. Um, they, they can marry whoever they want as long as the person's within their tribe. And so the daughters then end up marrying their cousins. Um, and there are two things we've got to get past here. The, the one, some of us have to get past the fact they marry their cousins. Right. And right. this is fascinating. Apparently... 10% of marriages in the world today take place between people who are second cousins and closer. Mm. That shocked me to mm. learn that. But modern examples of people who have married a second or first cousin would be Queen Elizabeth II, married her second cousin. Einstein, married a first cousin. H.G. Wells, married a first or second cousin. Um, Darwin, married a first or second cousin. So um, so that was that's not a big deal. The bigger deal for us is what they have to marry within their tribe, that's so restrictive. And I think this is where we need to recognize in a modern setting, we prioritize romance when it comes to weddings or when it comes to marriage.
0: Right.
1: Throughout the history of the world, people have, have prioritized other things like strengthening kinship relations, um, economic stability, um, yeah, romance, um, it wasn't unimportant, but it it didn't lead the pack. Mm-hmm. And so whereas we look and think, oh, that's so restrictive, I I want to suggest for the daughters of Zalafahad who realized um, marrying within the clan will keep the tribe within the land or within the clan mm-hmm. and will keep the land within the clan, they might have looked at it as anything else would have been selfish. Right. So different. But all that to say. The story finishes with them doing exactly as the Lord says. And so this second part of the book um, or the second mountain of the book begins and ends with examples of godly obedience um, carried out by these women, the daughters of Zelophehad, Mm -hmm. which to me is just beautiful that they're featured as the examples of faithfulness.
0: It's, I love that and it's it's very in line with 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 Ruth uh and and same instance of of women primarily being faithful and and it, it the Bible gives these beautiful counterexamples to the stereotypes. So when people stereotype with the 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 misnamed ordeal ritual because it wasn't an ordeal but when they say ah, Bible there's the misogyny there are almost there are always counterexamples that yeah. it's like god saying ah, that's not the full story like right. i'm doing something else and it, that's a yeah that's a great that's a great story and it's so hard to catch that if you're just casually reading through right you know right. Yeah. or or a preacher trying to figure out how to preach that which yeah. is the benefit full circle of having a commentary like jays that's aimed primarily at pointing these things out and telling us how they actually apply pulling that as we talked about in our last discussion on leviticus pulling the principle the eternal and the timeless principle out of the time-bound culture-bound uh skeleton or or i don't know whatever metaphor you want to use law that we read there yeah and applying it today so if you're preaching if you're teaching even if you're just interested reader of numbers get jay's commentary and see how many more of these type of things you're going to come across. There's many more, and we could talk about many more, but my friend, we are out of time. That's great. I want, you brought some, uh, you used to have some recommendations. I yes. Believe, for some resources, and we always love to give good resources. So I've recommended mine and my uh, Numbers Black Belt Bible Tips video, and now this is your chance to supplement. What would you But if somebody said, other than obviously people, this is going to be the assumed resource. I mean, this is going to set the bar. This is going to change number studies for the history of all time moving forward. (laughs) And (laughs) so
1: that being said, Jay, what do you recommend? um, Blessed are you, my son. Um, So (laughs) things are super helpful when you're going through a book like Numbers, but really any book of the Bible. One would be a good Bible atlas. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I think this one's one of the best Zondervan Bible atlas. And if you've never used one of these before, um, as you're going through the story of the Bible, I mean, these will begin with just general information on Bible lands and that kind of thing. But as you're going through, it will go through the story chronologically and then do things like this. It will provide a map. This is the 12 or their journey to the plains of Moab. Mm -hmm. Um, And it will provide these all along the way. So you can get some picture in your mind of what's taking place. And a lot of good study Bibles will include these maps in them as well. But that's super helpful to have. Um, Speaking of study Bibles, there is the, uh, you mentioned the NIV archaeology study Bible, which I think you said is out of print. As far as I know, yes. And I'm trying to get Zondervan to change that, but, you know. All right, come on, Zondervan. (laughs) Um, This is the ESV archaeology study Bible. So it's also very helpful, maps throughout, that kind of thing. And then when it comes to commentaries, um, Jam and I will overlap on technical commentaries. This is my, sorry, I'm looking over to my commentary (laughs) shelf. That's fine. This is, so Ashley's Mm Nikot, super helpful on uh, just straight exegesis of the text, very good with linguistics, Mm archaeology, history, that kind of thing. Now, do you
0: do you throw away the dust jackets or do you just not have a dust jacket for that one? Because I have friends who throw away the dust jackets and it makes me cringe that they do. So which camp are you in on this one? I feel hesitant to tell you now, (laughs) (laughs) Jay. I knew it. You're one of them. You're one of them. (laughs) Oh, oh, Um, this
1: podcast is now over.
0: (laughs) We were we were connecting so well, and no, that's no. I I I give my friend grief about that when I go in his room. Just like, oh, all those beautifully designed dust jackets. They're all. all But your way looks a lot more professional, lined up on the shelf. So keep one though. Ashley's commentary in the
1: night. Is great on those the things I mentioned. Um, yes. You're not going to go here for biblical theology. Mm-hmm. So it, he he that or application that wasn't part of the design of what he's going for. Right. Um, another uh, commentary I might put in the technical end would be Milgram's JPS commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, really well written and helpful. Uh, of course, Milgram's coming at it uh, often assuming some of the structures of a higher critical or historical critical approach and so that's going to impact um uh some of his readings of the text you always want to balance him with with someone else um but for more technical that's super helpful and then for less technical um so the the covers look different now but wenham's commentary on numbers is just excellent i mean concise um Uh, new testament links throughout the chapter so Mm -hmm. this one is very well done Um, i looked in my index um in my commentary to see who did i end up quoting the most i think it was Wenham i ended up quoting the most so Mm. um and then um so mine would be at the same kind of at the same level as Wenham's. Mm -hmm. it would differ in that these are meant to have much more application than a tyndall commentary right and one thing I tried to do in particular is I would end each um, each chapter with the application section. I would typically break that down into three or four sections. So that could be the three or four points of a sermon. Mm-hmm. And I entitled each section with a question. Yes, um, I noticed to, that just to help those who want to try and preach through inductively or mm-hmm. teach through in, inductively um, something like numbers. So those were the main things and, um, or the main resources I wanted to bring along. Uh, other resources, I have a website called preachandteachthebible.com. Mm-hmm. And there I give a whole bunch of like s- sermon series outlines, s- mini sermon outlines, etc. cetera. So preachandteachthebible.com is another place that you can go. So
0: to, to draw this to a close, then mm-hmm. give us your paraphrase
1: of the priestly blessing. Right, which is found in number six. May the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you. But those words are pregnant with meaning. Right. So here's how you might paraphrase it. May the Lord bless you, causing you to experience his favor, both physically with safety, health and material goods, and spiritually with his acceptance, nearness and fellowship. May he keep you, as the apple of his eye, hiding you in the shadow of his wings and protecting you from all harm. May he make his face shine upon you, turning it toward you beaming with steadfast love so that you know his favor and care. May he be gracious to you, answering your prayers for help and mercy and making clear that he is your saving God. May he lift up his countenance to you with favor shining from it, showing he accepts you and delights in you, May he give you peace, guarding you from all harm, removing every cause for worry, fear and concern, and leaving you assured of his protective blessing. Amen. Amen. I can't think of anything more
0: uh, needed right now in the world than that blessing prayed over everyone uh, all over. So beautifully said, my friend. Thank you for sharing that. Jay, it has been great having you back. Um, we're going to have you back again. When, when's, your, when's your Deuteronomy commentary coming? Okay. <laughs> Exodus hopefully next year, so we'll see. Yeah, you've got an Exodus one coming out. Uh, definitely, I'm going to track you back down and bring you in whenever that's out as well. Keep me posted on what you're doing I'm going to put links to all of the resources that we've mentioned. I'm going to put links in the video description to Jay's website. Preachers, if you're watching this and you're a preacher, a small group leader, a Bible study teacher, take advantage of what he has put together over on his website. It's incredibly helpful. And it does exactly what Disciple Dojo sets out to do, which is bridge the gap between academia and people in the pews reading their Bibles, like bringing the two together. Um that's that's what God calls people to do. And so I am thankful that people like you are doing just that, Jay. Thank you for giving uh about an hour and fifteen minutes, it looks like, of your afternoon. Really appreciate pleasure. it.
1: My pleasure, JM, and the Lord bless you for the way you're equipping so many people as well.
0: Amen. Well, thank you, sir. And I will hopefully see you in a couple of weeks at SBL. Okay. Sounds great. All right. Take care, brother. I want to thank Jay so much for spending a little bit of his afternoon with us here at the dojo. Once again, his two commentaries on Leviticus and Numbers, they're both out right now. They're both new. They're both wonderful. I absolutely recommend them wholeheartedly. And I hope you enjoyed this discussion about this woefully neglected book of the Bible, the book of Numbers. That's all for now. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned for so much more here at Disciple Dojo. And as always, keep training.